Okay, we want to wrap up what we did in John 8, talking about the woman caught in adultery. If you weren't here for that sermon last week, I'm going to recommend that before you make too much uh, about this part of today's sermon, you're going to need to go back and see that, because I'm going to say some things like, if this passage should be in the Bible, or if this passage should be in the book of John, and if you weren't here last week, that may freak you out a little bit. And so you may need to go back and listen to that sermon and, and look at the textual analysis and look at what it says actually in your Bible, which almost certainly is the same thing. So, um, But I do want to wrap that up and integrate that into the biblical truths that we do find building very clearly in the rest of chapter 8. But let's wrap up um, this little section um, and we're going to see how it fits in. So here we have um, Jesus has <clears throat> was in the temple. He was teaching. Um, and, and then this section is just kind of shoved there into the book of, uh, into the book of John. And uh, again, almost certainly doesn't belong there. But let's finish talking about it anyway. Um, in verse 7 um, of 8, and they continued to ask him. He stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So let me, let me make sure that you understand the context. Um, a lot has been written about this uh, account. And uh, if it is an account of Jesus Christ, if it is an accurate account, then, then really it's not special in that it's very similar to the other times that the leaders and the teachers of the law confront Jesus and try to get him in a trap. And so they trap, try to trap him about paying taxes, and he outsmarts them. They try to trap him about the resurrection, and he outsmarts them. He's just better at this than they are. He knows even their rules better than they do, and et cetera. And so what we've got in this situation is really just another example of that. So allegedly, these men have, and these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, the scribes that they've taught, caught a woman in adultery. There's all kinds of issues with that that we talked about last week that we won't get into today. So they bring this woman before Jesus, allegedly in the temple itself as he's teaching there, and, and they say, we caught this woman in adultery. The law of Moses said we should stone her to death, which is actually not technically true. They're, they're playing a little bit fast and loose there. But they say, what do you say? Now, they're trying to trap Jesus because if Jesus says, well, you should ignore the, the law of Moses, then the Jewish people, especially in the temple, are not going to be big fans of that. But if he says, oh yeah, I think, it's, I think you should kill her, well, the Romans have already made that illegal. The Romans are who dominate the culture. The people of Israel get to rule themselves, but only under Roman law. The Romans have conquered this whole region of the world at this time. So, so and they've given no one the authority to, to um, do capital punishment to kill somebody except them. So no one else has that right. So they see how they've got him trapped there. It's kind of like, do we pay... Taxes or not. It's the same kind of trap. Well, Jesus, just whatever it is he writes in the sand, and we talked about that last time. We're not going to discuss that today. He gets up and says this phrase, let the one who's without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. Now, here's what's interesting. Um, He seems to just be doing nothing more here than referencing the Old Testament law, the the law of Deuteronomy um, from the um, way back and the teachings of Moses which is the one that they allegedly were trying to cite, but did not do so perfectly. We see that in Deuteronomy 17. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterwards, the hand of all the other people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now notice, whose job is it literally here? 
Who is to cast the first stone? The first witness is to do that. This is, this is straight from the law of Moses. This is the passage they claim to be referencing. And they come to Jesus saying, what should we do? And so Jesus, probably riding some type of a fence in this dust on the temple floor, stands up and says, so where's the first witness? I mean, Jesus is not a judge. He's a rabbi. He's not a Pharisee. He's not a member of the Sanhedrin. He has no legal authority at all in this condition. In this situation, he has no standing. He's just a teacher. So they come to him and say, what should we do? And he goes, what do you mean, what should you do? Doesn't the book of Deuteronomy tell you what you should do? Well, okay. Well, the first witness ought to be throwing a stone right about now, don't you think? See, he's reversed the exact trap, reversed it back on them. They can't pick up a stone and throw it, or they will be guilty of going against Roman law. But if they don't pick up a stone and throw it, then they are saying, that, well, the law of Moses doesn't apply. So he's just completely reversed the, the trap on them. They are now stuck in their own trap purely because he knows the law better than they do. He goes, well, okay, the first one should throw a stone. Well, what happens is, I think the whole reason that it says that they leave in order from oldest to youngest is because in the Jewish world, oldest means wisest. And we know that's not always true. There are plenty of old fools in the world, but there are, there, the oldest is supposed to be the wisest. And so that's how they interchange that. The most, the wisest, the first ones to realize Jesus has just turned the tables on them and they've lost. It's probably all that means that they're going, well, they beat us again. And they turn and walk away into the crowd at the temple. If this is a correct story, that's probably all that's really going on here. So Jesus, while they're wandering off, oldest to youngest, realizing they've been beaten, um, Jesus is still doodling in the sand, whatever it is he's writing. And at some point, he looks up and acts all surprised that no one's there. Now, the woman is still here, which is always intriguing to me. All of her condemners run, and she doesn't. This was a perfect chance for her to, to run away. But she doesn't. She's standing there waiting for Jesus' judgment on this. And interestingly enough, she even the way she says it. So Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Again, I think you should picture Jesus almost feigning surprise here, like, oh, well, what do you know? They all left. You're still here. Where are all the people who condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. Now, I don't know how much emphasis to place on that word, Lord. I don't know if she has recognized that the, in the truth that he is somehow, in the end, the judge. I don't know if there's something more, or, I mean, that's another way in the Hebrew world saying Lord can just mean sir. Can just be a sign of, of uh, authority. How much should I put in that? I don't know. Again, given that this may not even be um, necessarily scriptural, makes it harder to engage with that. But she says, no one, Lord. <clears throat> so Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now again, a lot of ink has been spilled on this passage and, and on this terminology. Um, did Jesus approve of her sin? Did Jesus, is Jesus not condemning sin? Listen, he wasn't a witness. You don't need to know anything else about this except this. He's not a witness. The book of Deuteronomy says the first stone should be thrown by the first witness. There are no witnesses standing around. Jesus has, although obviously as the son of God, if Jesus wanted to, to express his authority as a son of God, he could judge her in this moment. But that's not why Jesus was here 2,000 years ago. He tells us that. His main job was not judge. He wasn't wearing the robes 2,000 years ago. There's a place for that in the future. There's a role for that in the future. But at the time he's here, that's not what he's doing. It doesn't mean that there isn't judgment to come, and we'll talk about that. But I think it's important to recognize there's nothing <coughs> all that magical about this passage, if, if, if it is even belonging in the Bible, that Jesus is saying, listen, 
I don't condemn you. I didn't catch you. I'm not a witness. However, stop sinning. Cut this out. Can you, can you read the compassion? People read the compassion in this and they think that Jesus is therefore undermining somehow the law about adultery. Oh no, he's not. That's ridiculous. There's nothing in his passage to say that except his compassion. As if people don't understand Jesus' relationship to sin. Let me tell you God's understanding. God has this dual relationship to sin. One part of his relationship to sin is the absolute offense against his holiness that sin is. That's why we never wink at sin. We never go like, eh, well, we never, we never treat it as not a big deal. We should never treat sin in our own lives or in the lives of our church and our community or our family. We should never treat that as, uh, eh, just it's not a big deal. Yes, it is. We have an absolutely righteous and holy God. And we will, before I get done, we'll talk about this. And we will answer to him, even as believers, we will answer to him for everything we've done. Like that's, that's, this is not some little deal. It's not some like, eh, it's just my hobby. No, it's not. It's sin against a holy, almighty, perfect, righteous God who is deeply offended by our sin and by all sin. That's one of the ways that God engages with sin. That's part of his dual relationship with sin is the offense as the perfect, righteous, holy judge. You, you see this in your social media interactions, don't you? Well, we can wink at it. We can... We can find a way to get around it. We can find a way to minimize it. We can find a way to, no, it's sin. That's not how Christians engage with sin is to go like, well, you know, policies will save us from this sin. No, it won't. See, that's actually what Jesus is facing here is, is part of this distinction that is going on in his culture. See, being a good Jew doesn't make you a good Roman in Jesus' time. Trying to follow God and trying to follow Rome and Caesar they don't go together very well. For a weird fluke, for a freak of nature, a miracle of God, for about 200 years, being a good citizen of the United States gave you a shot maybe at being a good citizen of heaven. There was a lot of overlap, maybe 90, 95%. Although, honestly, even when you go back to the founders who were founding on Judeo-Christian ethics a country and proclaimed so, even though it wasn't a Christian nation, they weren't creating a theocracy, they were saying these Judeo-Christian ethics are how we're making decisions about laws. And yet these same people were so poor at applying the truth of, who, uh, of Scripture themselves that they end up like counting af people from Africa as less than a full person. So understand, even the founders who were trying to follow this Judeo-Christian ethic did so poorly. They didn't, they didn't look at the passages that talked about in God's kingdom, there's no... There's no such thing as free and slave. Like, that's not how this works. That's not how we, so, so they engage with this stuff as we have attempted this. But in a lot of ways, honestly, being a good Christian, being a good American have overlapped a lot. Well, we're starting to see that change over the last like 40 or 50 years. And slowly but surely, it's changing more and more. Rather than us panic about that, let me just tell you, that means we're joining the rest of the Christian world for the last 2,000 years. The fact that we've gotten to have it easy for a little while is is. Cool, awesome, how fun is that? Because we have a government that like gives tax, gives a tax break for you because you gave money to the church? What the heck is that? How long can we count on that? But, or, or will our giving go way down if the, when the day comes when they stop doing that, when it's no longer so easy and we go from being 90% overlap to being 40% overlap? Because it's gonna happen. It's what happens in all cultures uh, if you're looking for the government and if you're looking for, for policies to somehow save us from our sin, 
Yeah, stop that. It's not going to work out for you. That's not how governments work. Those are created by men, overseen by God in some miraculous ways, but that's included all kinds of amazingly awful governments. So Jesus is facing something here that we are starting to learn to face as well, which is okay. That's okay. We don't need to be afraid of that. It's just part of how this works. As we look, continue looking through this, um, <coughs> to close out kind of this thought, and then we'll come back to some of it. Notice that Jesus' response to her is also including the other half of how God dualistically engages with the, two, the dual engagement of sin. And that is, as a father who is brokenhearted, that his children are choosing something that is destroying their lives. Part of what God, Jesus hates about sin is how much it messes up our lives. So like the, the father whose child is caught up in drug use, and you will never find someone who hates meth like the parent of a child who is addicted to meth. I mean, they hate it. They hate it at two levels. How dare you use that junk in my house? The holy offense. And then number two, please stop destroying your life with that. That's what Jesus' words are saying to this woman. Woman, walk away from your sin. Now while you can, walk away. Get away from it. It's going to destroy you. And we hear Jesus' compassion and people have some people come back and say, like, see how much compassion Jesus has on her? Sin's not a big deal to him. Don't do that. Don't take a verse like this and take it completely out of context and then decide this is the doctrine. Is Jesus compassionate on us in our sin? Yes, praise God, he is. And is he compassionate on us because he wants us to get away from it because he knows it's messing up our life? Yes. Does that mean he does not find himself deeply offended against his holiness? Oh no, he still does. So we take that seriously. Go and sin no more. So now jumping back into the passage that we, that we have more confidence, much more confidence, this is before the year 400 AD. We're going to read it the way it would have read before the year 400 AD. I mean, we're going to do it in English. They wouldn't have. But we're going to read it in English. But the way it would have been written without this story. So if you go back to about, I don't know, we're going to start in about verse 46 of chapter 7 and read straight through. So you remember, you have these, they're in the middle of the ceremony of the, the Feast of Tabernacles where you have all the, the booths set up all over Jerusalem, and people would have come from all over Israel and all over the world to experience this. And one of the great, the great ceremonies within the feast was the water ceremony where they go down and they dip water out of the pool of Siloam and carry it back up to the temple. And we talked in detail about that. Paul taught in detail about that a few weeks ago. And, and then they poured it out. And sure enough, Jesus proclaims himself the living water, clearly referencing this huge ceremony, this massive daily ceremony within the Feast of Booths. And saying, this, this, this was always being done about me. This was always about me all along. What you were doing, you thought it was about this, but the truth is, it was about me. I'm that water. That's what it is. Understanding that the other great ceremony that goes on in the midst of the Feast of Booths is the lighting ceremony. That they have these giant menorahs, these giant menorahs that are built inside the, the women's section of the temple. Maybe 150 feet tall or more. And they had these giant flames on the top of them that, according to legend, were so bright that every single yard in Jerusalem was lit and all night long when they would shine these things. Understand that that's what's going on in the Feast of Booths, right? All right. So I'm just going to read straight through, starting in verse 46. The officers answered, they're speaking to the Sanhedrin, no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, have you been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Now Nicodemus, who had gone before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? 
And the other Pharisees replied, what are you, from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Verse 12 of chapter 8, which would have been how it was read until 400 AD. And again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is a huge moment in human history. When Jesus declares himself in the Feast of Booths, the living water and the light of the world. He is clearly proclaiming proclaiming himself God. He is clearly proclaiming proclaiming himself the Messiah. And, And it's going to make people mad when he does this under these conditions. But as a good Jewish audience, which I know you are now, when you hear the phrase, I am the light of the world, your mind should go in two directions immediately in regards to scripture. So the the phrase, light of the world, where does that take you in the Bible? You know, somebody yell it. Close, we'll get there. For further back, remember you're a Jewish audience. There's no Matthew 5 in the Jewish audience. For the Jewish audience, you got to go back further. I give you a hint. It's, it's way back further. Yes, Genesis. Good, excellent. Okay, so Genesis 1 is the right answer. <clears throat> so in Genesis 1, let there be light. The first words of God, let there be light. And Jesus is proclaiming himself, I am the light of the world. So a good, a good Jew would have heard that and said like, whoa, what exactly are you claiming? Menorah? Yes, this is the light of Jerusalem. I'm the light of the world. For all time, I'm the light of the world. And, and the second part, which, and that's offensive. The Jewish audience have been like, what, are you, what exactly are you claiming about yourself? You're the light? But that wouldn't even be the worst part of this. What's the worst part? I am the light of the world. The phrase I am, yeah. You can't just do that. Jesus can't just say I am. He can't use that phrase. Understand, outside of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the most important moment possibly in human history is when Moses stood before the burning bush and the angel of the Lord and said, who do I say sent me? When I go back to Pharaoh and I go back to the people of Israel and I say that, that El has sent me, that's just a title, God. And I say El has sent me, who do I say sent me? There are a lot of gods. Remember, he was raised in, in Egypt. Which God is sending me? And the angel of the Lord says to him, you tell them, I am sent you. And for the first time that we know of in human history, man was given the name of God. Not just his title, but his name. This is now a personal at a new level. Yahweh, I am. I am that I am. The, the pre-incarnate, I exist because I exist. It's a, it's a powerful philosophical stance, argument. And it, it shuts down a lot of the arguments against theism today, that God is a pre-existent being. He exists because he exists. Everything exists only because he exists. This is this I am that I am. You tell them I am sent you. This is, this is thousands of years ahead of where, where humans were philosophically. It took a long time before humans to catch up and realize the significance of this statement. But he declared himself, I am that I am. This was a, um, 
Some of you probably listen to or see or read some of his books, but I, I really, really want to like Joel Osteen. I mean, he just seems like a likable dude, doesn't he? Like he's, he's got this awesome smile. He's got this great attitude. He seems to, I mean, he's got this beautiful family. He gives away millions upon millions of dollars. He takes no, no, no money from the church. or I mean, I, I really admire some things about this guy and I've always really wanted to like him. Um, he also dresses really awesomely snappy. Like I just, I'm like, man, I need his tailor. It's a, it's, it's, so a few years ago, but I've always been troubled by, I love <laughs> that he, the beginning of his sermons, he will say, he, every sermon, as far as I know, he holds up his Bible and he has everyone in the audience hold it. I've thought about just flat stealing this. It's so good. This is God's word. And he goes this whole long list. At one point he says, it is, it is, it is like, it's always the truth. I am what it says I am. Like that's, that's powerful right there because it's the truth. Uh, we, we are who, who God bestows upon us. That's an important thing that fights against today's culture, which says, no, no, I get to decide who I am. No, you don't. God's truth is who decides who you are. That's the fundamental. You can tack some stuff on, but understand the foundation is laid in stone. He didn't ask for your vote. And so this is a, this is a powerful picture. The problem is the, almost every sermon of his that I've watched, he never again goes back and re-references that very Bible that he just held up at the beginning of the sermon. The rest of the sermon doesn't involve that all-important God's Word that he started with. So a few years ago, he came out with a book called I Am, and I was so excited. I, I saw it in the, in the, I was in the airport, talking about it, I saw it, and I was like, finally, I get to like Joel. He's written some deep theological stuff. He's in, engaged with the name of God, Yahweh, I Am. Like, I'm so excited about this, because his health and wealth stuff is just junk. Anybody who, the health and wealth, that's not about Joel, that's about health and wealth teaching. Health and wealth teaching is junk. It's unbiblical. So whoever teaches it, if I teach it, it's junk. So if I ever teach it, throw it away. That's a, so this is a, so I was so excited about it and I get the book and I'm like, he's gonna dive into the Yahweh, the name of God. And it turns out it's a whole book of things that I'm supposed to claim about myself. Some of them just delusional. I am attractive. I am thin. I am young. I am, I'm athletic. I am rich. I'm, I was like, no, no, I'm, but, I, but, I'm, but I'm not like some of those things. Like, and, and so I have a truth is important to me. And so this is a, I'm reading through that. And I'm like, what, that, I don't understand this. The book is called I Am. Where is, and I was so heartbroken, honestly heartbroken, because I really do want to like him and, and, and even the stuff he does, because there's so much good that he does do. But I was so brokenhearted that as I read the book and then listened to his sermon about the book, and he, he never once references that this is God's name. And let me, let me tell you why that matters. Anything that's true about me doesn't matter outside of the fact of who God is. Like, who I am is irrelevant outside of God proclaiming these things about me. Like, that's the thought that I can claim something in defiance of who the, the actual I am says I am. That's what matters. We're going to get there in a second. And the idea of the fear of judgment, which is right and righteous to fear judgment, there's an answer that God's going to give to that that, that requires an acceptance of the identity that he places on us, that he puts on us. So as, as I was, I was kind of sad about that. What a great opportunity to talk about who he is and therefore who we are. Not because we claim it, because he claims it. That would be more powerful in my mind. So Jesus, John told us this was coming, by the way. This whole account, way back in John 1, John said, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So John told us this, was, this moment was coming. He foreshadowed this, and we finally made it in the book of John to this point where it's abundantly clear. This is one of the repeated themes, light, 
By the way, water is a repeated theme that we've already seen multiple times. But try to imagine. So I, I, am, a, I am a little bit kind of semi-addicted to post-apocalyptic literature. I, I just, I just it, it motivates me to exercise is one of the reasons that I like it so much. Like, I, need, I feel like I always need to learn to run better when there's zombies. But there's a, like in my mind, here's one of the things that strikes me is, understand the two of the main themes when you read that literature, one of them is darkness and light. Because if the lights go out, it's suddenly very, very dark. And the other one is water, because you, you need water within just a few days or you die. Imagine the life that the people lived in first century Israel, we would call that post-apocalyptic. Like, if you, if you shut down the grid and you shut down all our modes of travel and you shut down all our electricity and you shut down all our communications, that's what they lived with every day. And so imagine how significant the themes of darkness are to them because 2,000 years ago, when, when it got dark, it was dark. Have you been like in a cave? You've done the cave walks or whatever? Or you've been in a part of the country or a part of the world where they don't have electric light everywhere and they shut off the light? One of my favorite things that we do is when we go out on the Sea of, uh, uh, of Galilee that we, we have to kind of bribe our boat people to, because to, they're not supposed to do this, but to turn the lights out while we're out there. And I mean, you, it, gets, it gets dark. There's nothing. And, and the thought of how dark it was, well, of course, light is a powerful theme for them. It's a constant need. We have light all the time. We don't think about this like, oh, I need some more light. We're always going like, how do I turn the screen down? We're, we're, over, we're over inundated with light, and so we don't think about the, the desperate need for light or the, or the need for water. We, have, we can just turn on the faucet or whatever. So we don't always think in those terms, but those are important concepts. Also, we are afraid of the dark. This is a fascinating one because, because almost all children are afraid of the dark at some point. And unlike some fears, like a lot of our very youngest childhood fears, we don't really remember them because we grow out of them before we're old enough to remember them. But fear of the dark, for many of us, lasts at last seven, eight, nine, ten years old. You're still afraid of the dark. And so you may remember when you stopped being afraid of the dark, if, if you ever did. Some of you may still be afraid of the dark. But that's, that's a powerful thing. The issue is that I want to I bring to our mind right here is this. We, over, we outgrow our fear of physical darkness, which is great. But are we afraid enough of spiritual darkness? Or is that what we treat as though it's not very significant? Yes, I can let this evil into my life. Yes, I can let this, this source of sin into my life. Yes, I can flirt around with this sin or that sin, or I can, the spiritual darkness, I can, I can play around with things that I know aren't true. I'll just, I'll just hang out there. That'll be fine. We're not afraid enough of spiritual darkness, and we don't understand the effect of spiritual darkness sometimes on our souls. That, that there, is, there is effect that it has on us as we engage with light as a theme. And by the way, one of the ways that light plays out in this is that judgment is a theme. Truth is a theme. And one of the things that light is supposed to do is give a correct picture, which is what allows us to judge. The role of judgment in our own lives, the role of decision-making in our own lives and discerning in our own lives. We're going we're gonna to get, we're seriously thinking about Advent, doing just, just staying with John. And doing John chapter 9 during Advent. Here's what strikes me. So John chapter 9 is an entire chapter about Jesus' engagement with a blind man. And it brings to light, no pun intended, the idea that the only person in the whole chapter who knows what's going on, the only two people is Jesus and a blind man. Everybody else is blind. The only person who can see is the blind man. And, and I feel like as we're going into the season where we celebrate the birth of Christ... 
I think there's some worthwhile themes along the lines of, are we aware of our blindness? Or do we think we're so well-sighted, but the truth is we're blind? I think that may be a worthwhile conversation for us to have in there. We See, we, we are blind. We, um, we are not light. We are not water. He is. The dark humor of true humanism is to watch a humanist try to explain how humans can solve the problems that we cause. Because it turns out we're not that impressive. But so then how do we engage with this? God has called us to do these amazing things. We're actually called little Christs. That's what Christian means, little Christ. And so, so these little Christs, we're his ambassador, we're his representatives, we're his body on earth, his hands, his feet. But if we're not light, if we're not water, how are we supposed to do that? Well, check this out. Um, in John 7, the chapter we were at just last, just last few weeks, we've noticed this verse. This verse is special to our church. It's part of why the symbol for our church is what it is. Um, 38, verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I think I sent them the wrong verse. That's my fault. Um, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We become a water source because his spirit comes to live in us. We become now not a dry well, but a well that is overflowing. That's what we become. How about this? This would be straight blasphemy if it wasn't the words of Jesus. Listen to this. Jesus says, Matthew records Jesus in, in his most famous sermon. Uh, 5, starting in verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14, You are the light of the world. That would be heretical or blasphemous or something for us to make that claim. Because Jesus is the light of the world. We just heard that. He said, I am the light of the world. And yet here he is saying, you are the light of the world. This is what it means. We're his, we're his ambassadors. We're his many representatives. And you don't do dumb things. You don't, <clears throat> in fact, this idea, listen, I, I don't know how to teach this. Like, I, I just don't. I don't know how to proclaim this in such a way that your response is to go, oh my gosh, mind blown. Like, that's, that's how we should be responding to this truth is to go, wait, I'm the light? I thought he was the light of the world. Wait, he's saying I'm the light of the world? I represent him that much. We are the light of the world. And so I, as I wrestled through, what, what picture do I use to bring this um, image, make, to make it more clear? And I came up with one that's my best shot. It is the humble jack-o'-lantern. <laughs> now, you may have thought, I'm never going to say, you'd never see one of those in church. But we're not afraid here. So... <clears throat> Here's, here's the idea that he says. So as, as we're carving this, you recognize that, Michael? Yay, that's Michael's, that's Michael's pumpkin. Um, that was his, that's his design. Um, it's a week old, so it's not looking all that awesome. For those of you who are near the front, you're probably a little concerned, but everybody else is fine. Um, so, so here's the thing. This, this, as, as we're doing the little pumpkin carving tradition, which is always fun, and they get to create what they want to do and all that kind of stuff. So Ginger walks out and hands me a book. He's like, why don't you read this to the kid? And it is the gospel according to the jack-o'-lantern. And, and it just works. I mean, listen to this. Okay, so you start as one thing. And, and Christ purchases you, right? Claims you. Cleans you out. 
cleans all the gunk out, puts a new identity on you, and then shines his light through you. That's the very concept of the, of the gospel and the role of us being the light. We aren't the light. We are the vessel that bears the light. That makes us the light of the world. You get that concept? That's pretty good, isn't it? So I stole it. It's not, it's not unique to me. But So this is, a, this is a pretty cool concept that we would say, this is like who we are. We, we are the vessel. Now, the Apostle Paul goes into great detail with this, that we are like, Vessels that carry these things, the God's glory inside of us, that that shines out of us. But I want you to have that in your head, is that that's what we're, what, what do you not do? So no one who carves a pumpkin and puts a candle in it, no one then puts a cardboard box over it. Which is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Um, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. You all remember that from the song, right? Do you hide it under a bushel? That was terrible. You know, that's, you, that was the only thing you enjoyed sometimes at children's church if you were like me was the opportunity to scream, no! Like that was the, except the tack. The tack was the only other good part, right? But no, we don't hide it under, because that's dumb. No one does that. You don't have a light and then cover it up. Is that, but is that how we live? We're this light and Jesus, we are the light of the world that his light shines through us and yet we're constantly going like, oh, I probably shouldn't talk about that. Oh, I probably shouldn't show that too much. Oh, I probably shouldn't. Be that, yeah, see, we're, we're missing the whole point. And the Pharisees, of course, miss entirely the power of what Jesus is teaching here. So the Pharisees say to him in verse 13, you're bearing witness about yourself. Remember, he said, I am the light of the world. You're bearing witness about yourself, so your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you don't know where I come from or where I am going. See, they should have said like, your testimony isn't convincing or something like that. They, they're doing the same thing with the word truth that our media keeps doing. Well, we've heard one person's truth, now let's hear another person's truth. That's not what truth means. We need a word for that. We need a, something that means disinterested, objective, external, something that is true, whether we know it, believe it, or like it. Even if we all got together and voted against it, it would still be true. We need a word for that. If it's not going to be true anymore, we need a new one. But they're saying, well, you don't have two witnesses, so your testimony isn't true. No, it may not be valid under the law. Fine. But it's still true. See, that the testimony, social media proves this to us. The testimony of thousands of ignorant people is not worth as much as the testimony of one person who knows the truth. Right? And that's, that's just how that works. Sorry, that is the nature of it. Wikipedia can teach us consensus, but it cannot teach us truth. There is an, there's an answer that's either right or wrong. Now, we don't always know the truth. We're humble enough to acknowledge that. We don't always know the truth. But understand that Jesus is saying, but I'm the only one who knows this. Now, what's funny is then Jesus calls in a second witness. He actually does, which is very cool theologically, by the way. Um, <clears throat> we're going to talk more about this. And, and as humans, we think we're super good at this whole truth thing. We think we're super good at knowing reality. And, and actually, we, we don't. On Wednesday night, I'm going to... Wednesday, I'm going to show a video to discuss that part of this because I think it's really valid and valuable for us as Christians to understand that we need to be humble. But this is the way that works. Um, an abundance of testimony that is wrong isn't as valuable as one person's testimony who is right. Now, here's what Jesus responds, though. You want a second witness? How about this? You judge according to the flesh, verse 15. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I 
and the Father who sent me. Now, I don't know about you, but if you want to call two witnesses, God the Father and God the Son are good ones to call. If you can get them on the same page and they're backing your version, you're, you're in a good place, right? That's, that's, that's an awesome thing to have. And it also, by the way, it strikes me how significant there's a, yet another non-academic significance to the Trinity is that you have always have two witnesses to the actions of the third, to the work of the third. There's always two witnesses. That struck me as interesting. So I want to dig into that. But, um, but we know. So here it says, uh, in your law, it is written the testimony of two people is true. I am one who bears witness about myself and the Father bears witness about me. But understand, Jesus wasn't coming here. His main job wasn't to judge. That's that phrase, if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge. That, that idea, or when Jesus talks about that, I don't judge the way you judge. You judge on the outside, I don't judge that way. Not I. I, I do it differently than that. But notice that wasn't his main job here on earth that first time 2,000 years ago. He came as the lamb. Just a few chapters ago, John three seventeen, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, that the world might be saved. Plus, so what Jesus is doing is Jesus is laying down the truth. 2,000 years ago when he came, he was laying down the truth. That truth and how we respond to it, that is our judge. How you respond to the truth is the judge itself. He's going to say that when we get to John chapter 12, whenever that is. If anyone hears my word and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. See, the very fact that he is light means he reveals truth. How we respond to that truth is our judgment. He is judge in that his word judges us. He doesn't have to make it up. The word is there. His word will judge us. So this is, this is the challenge for a pastor, at least for me, to, to try to teach is, I, I want this side of the conversation to be taken very, very seriously. That, that we will face judgment. That everything we have done will be brought into the light. Sometimes, some of us will face it here on earth, which is painful enough. But everything will be brought into the light. He is light. He is the light of the world. He exposes and reveals and comforts and all those things. But this is, we will face this judgment. The Apostle Paul tells us this in no uncertain terms. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we, he's including himself, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, good or evil. So understand that, that past the judgment, there's a judgment where you have the saved and the not saved, the, the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares, pick, pick whatever um, parable you want to, those who have accepted the free gift of his grace and those who have not. Past that judgment, there still is a conversation that we each get to have with Jesus Christ in which we talk about how we lived our life. What did we do with this truth? What did we do with this light? What kind of a husband was I? He's going to have that conversation with me. Chris, tell me about, let's talk about you as a husband. Good and evil. That's, it's, it's a mistake that many times in the world, especially for us as men, I think it's easy for us because, you know, the whole, you know, un, un, if your wife isn't happy, no one's happy. If a happy wife equals happy life type of thing, right? And so it's easy for us as men to think, oh, well, the person who I stand in judgment, the person who stands in judgment over me as a husband is my wife. No. As awesome as our wives are, they're not perfect. Only God is perfect. 
And, and in the end, my wife doesn't answer to me. Ginger doesn't answer to me for who she is as a wife. She answers to God for that. And I won't answer to my parents for what kind of a son I was. I will answer to God for that. And brother, and pastor, and teacher, who are apparently judged more harshly, whatever that means, but it's scary. Like this is, a, this is real, and I want us to treat this with, with sobriety, with seriousness, with a sense of, I, I want that conversation to go well. I want that to be a conversation which God says, you know what? Of course you weren't perfect. Of course you messed stuff up, but well done. You've been good and you've been faithful. Good job. You tried hard. I'm going to take your attempts and count that as, that's, we want that. Okay? And, and I don't want to minimize the power of this because it's so clearly scriptural and Paul wants us to take it seriously. Jesus wants us to take it seriously. But then what do we do with this sin? Because we know we can't solve our sin problem. We can't solve that conversation on our own. We can't solve that. We can't fix that. It's, it's terrifying to think it can be if you take it seriously. Terrifying to think we're going to have a conversation with God about the kind of parents we've been, the kind of children we've been. And so I think there's an appropriate level of like, I don't know, fear or anxiety or something, respect for that moment that bubbles up in us. But I don't want us to live just here because that's also not biblical. That's not appropriate either. We find ourselves dealing with the terror of that sin. So let's, let's spend a little bit of time over here. What do we do with that sin? Well, the same author, John, tells us in his letter we call 1 John. Chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, <coughs> he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, which we can kind of wrap our brains around. We can understand forgiveness. But here's the part we have a hard time with. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Understand that with the work of Christ, you are cleansed. If you put your faith in him, you've been washed by his blood. You could never make yourself impure again if you spent the rest of your life trying. There's nothing you can do to overwhelm the, the blood of Jesus Christ as a cleansing agent. He has cleansed you. You can live as though you're not pure, but you can't ever not be pure again. He has purified you. You have been made righteous before him. Nothing you can do can change that. You can act like you're not, but you can't not have it be true. My children can act like they're not my children, but they're stuck. They're my kids. They're always going to be. They could file an injunction with the, with the government to declare themselves not my kid. That's just government denial. Sorry. <clears throat> this is a thing, right? Understand, this is how this works. We are, they are our children. That's been proclaimed. It's been declared. It is the truth. And in the same way, nothing could ever make us impure again. So do we fear that conversation? Well, I would say we should respect that conversation. We should take that conversation seriously. But with that sin, <clears throat> we sang about it last week from, in the song. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. That's that's why it can be well with our soul. It's, he took it all. He took care of it. The, um, King David, who knew a little bit about sin and forgiveness, wrote in the 32nd Psalm. Don't you listen to this? Especially if you don't know Christ. Especially if you still bear these sins. Especially if they still keep you up at night. Especially, even if you're a believer, if you're wallowing in the guilt. Listen to this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That's important language. He knows there's iniquity. He just doesn't count it against us. And in those whose spirit there is no deceit. 
meaning from him. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as if by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The sleep that comes with this truth, the freedom that comes with this truth, the light and the the water that comes rushing out of us as we engage with this truth for the first time and understand that we've been forgiven, the identity change that happens. We are given a new face and a light that shines from us. That's miraculous. I can barely understand how to teach about that. I don't even know how to touch on the fact that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Man, we search everywhere for light, and he is the light of the world. It's, it's beyond my capacity um, to even really engage with. So I'm going to pray instead that the Spirit will, will somehow bring that to life in you with what it is that that, that light should, should be, how that should be lived out, how his light should be lived out in your life, how his water should be enjoyed in your life and the lives of those around you. Don't cover it up with a basket. No. Instead, embrace that. Engage with that. Live that out. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the truth of your word. It's hard for me to imagine um, this truth in, in the fullest sense, that you are the light. Um, I've seen darkness. Um, I've seen um, spiritual darkness and mental darkness at the extreme levels. And God, knowing that we have hope and confidence in your Son as the light of the world. And I pray we will never get trapped in trying to impress people with our light. When we do good things, and I know you call us to do good things, and when we help hurting people, and when, we, when we bless um, hungry people, and when we comfort scared people, God, the, the water that we are giving them, the light that we are showing them, help us never to take credit for that, Lord. You are the light of the world. Your spirit is the, is the well that erupts inside of us into a spring of living water. God, I pray that people would see this and that we would use this to point them back to you. Just as your word said, that people would see the light and they would see our good deeds and they would give glory to you, Father in heaven. I pray we'll figure out through the power of your spirit how to live that. In truth and in freedom, we pray it in your son's name.